pretty exciting um, because we have noticed um, a lot in our, well, whatever it is that we do, trying to change the world, right? That there's a huge correlation between mental health and addiction. And we are not qualified, no matter how many mental health issues we have, we're not qualified to really talk about that. However, we have a guest today who is Dr. Elizabeth Miller of Well Mind and Body, and she is here to answer some questions that we all want to know about. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks. Thank you. Both Elizabeth. Elizabeth squared. Right. Okay, so. All right. So what do we have? Um, would you, you, I think, would you like to go with the first question, Antonia? So you had a revelation today. A revelation today mm-hmm. that some of the things that I was doing mm. was to have control or don't lose control of something. Well, that's difficult because right. when you're drinking, that's one thing you can't control. You must have been a train wreck. Yes. Yeah. The question is, I know that I like alcohol when I was I start drinking because I like it. I, di- I didn't knew that I will be dependent on alcohol later on, but one of the first things that I, I, I reach alcohol because it tasted good. Whatever I drink, rum, tequila, what say you, uh, vodka, I like it. I didn't knew that later on I will use it as, for me, I don't know that I was coping. It will give me the strength or the control or perceived control of certain things that I was doing my life, it became more professional. I, I did not drink because somebody broke with me or... Uh, I remember a pet dying and I did drink on that one. But it was something like that. It was a heartfelt thing. I lost control of that. And uh, I, I remember that, uh, you know, on certain professional things that I started drinking, not just to get the contract or whatever. It was just because of the stress, I think. And I thought it was okay that that will give me some certain clarity that obviously did not happen, right? But, and then fears, control by, of fear. You know, I had a fear of uh, heights or fear of uh, flying, and that's what I do for a living, <laughs> you know? So there certain things that did not make sense. Alcohol, I, this substance allowed me to have control. I perceive control of this. Then through time, it proved not a good thing, obviously, for many reasons so and for me I never liked the taste Mm. I straight up had my first drink at that seventh grade dance party and I liked the way it made me not feel anxious it made me the center of attention Um, I liked that I never cared about what it tasted like mine was just an escape from the very beginning when I was 12 years old. It allowed you to be someone else. It allowed me to be someone else. And it had a hold of me. I I knew there was a problem long before I quit. I knew I also had a problem, but I didn't know what it was. Right. So now it's starting to come clear, you know. Mm-hmm. This. Well, and it's hard too to know, it's, it's hard to know that it's a problem when it's so socially accepted mm-hmm. and it's so prevalent. And everyone around us is using or, or drinking. 
they might not be drinking to the extent of someone who has a, a, a serious dependence, um, but alcohol is everywhere. It's easily accessible. And so the prevalence of it, I think, in some ways, okays it in our brains. Mm-hmm. Even culturally, you know, from my Latin culture, my background, is there. I mean, it's not here, it's everywhere you go, is there. Yeah. Available. Yeah. You know, so it, From it, a young it, age. Yes, it was normal. I, I saw it as a normal, and I didn't saw anything wrong with it. Right. And, you know, even until recently, probably two, three years ago, I still didn't clap me that it's wrong, or, or it can be harmful. Let's just say no wrong, but it's harmful. Well, and I think that is a a great example of just a lot of things we work through in psychotherapy is Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that are normal. That doesn't mean they're necessarily healthy or good for us or in alignment with what we need. Right. So how we determine that? You know, you said our needs, what is that we needed? How an individual, how Elizabeth can have determined what she needed? What you needed? I needed love and I didn't get it. Yeah, you, exactly. Then how we ask what we need, you know, because certain age, you know, certain age, we are too young or too uh, immature to know that, and to what is gonna need, what we need to ma- meet our needs. You know, we we had the basic one, you know, food, shelter, what say you, right? Mm-hmm. But then after that, what else that we need? We need the emotional, we need the love, we need uh, uh, fulfillment professionally as 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 individual as a. I, I, what is that? What is that need? How, how we establish that need, and then how we just go? Well, you know what's interesting mm-hmm. in what you just said. Mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me, is that this is something I hear every day. So I, you know, I had a roof over my head. I had food. That my basic needs were met. And then people say, "What kind of what you just said?" Well, and then I, I had some love. <laughs> and isn't it interesting that in our culture we separate connection from basic need? Mm-hmm. Humans are mammals. We need connection to survive. We need genuine connection. So if we're growing up in a family system where we don't have anyone that's really empathetic toward us, we don't have someone that we feel can understand us or connect with us, um, we're going to miss out on a lot of instances where we could learn how to cope with life. Because when we feel overwhelmed as children and we don't have someone meeting us where we are, we're going to just start to fill in the gaps ourselves, which can lead to a lifelong um, pattern of maladaptive behavior, right? So, okay, there's a child that really is upset and someone's like, oh, you're fine, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's that dismissive nature. Um, Well, that child sits there and goes, oh, okay, well, I guess my feelings don't matter. Mm -hmm. They're not valid. So I am either going to act out or shove them so far down that I can't feel them at the moment. Both can lead to maladaptive behaviors, which are not super healthy going through life. Because throughout our life, there's a lot of things that happen where we need to be able to connect with others, re-regulate ourselves so that we can get through the hard things. Like your earlier example prior to recording, you said that, you know, you would get white knuckle, right, on a plane. It just felt so overwhelming for you. It, you know, we kind of established that it felt super out of control for you to be on a plane. You would sweat, you'd have physiological symptoms. You had so Mm -hmm. much fear. Mm -hmm. Fear of lack of control. I mean, that makes sense, right? You said fear of heights, right? I mean, part of, it's partially healthy to have some fear of heights. 
we don't want to get up on the top of a building and get to the edge. That's just not safe. No. Mm-hmm. Where we want to really work, though, and and this is where a lot of the, the trauma work comes in is, you know, where in our, our life has there been a discrepancy in connection? Where in our life has there been a discrepancy in coping mechanisms that are that are healthy, that work for us, that are in alignment with what our needs are? So, like we were talking about, as children, we grow up and we have a set of, we're, we're in a system. Our family is a system. Whether it's good or bad, healthy or not, you know, that's to be determined. But when we grow up in a system that doesn't really meet all of our needs, um, or a majority of our needs through connection, um, what we do start to see is this maladaptive behavior. We do start to see adults who have no idea how to regulate their nervous system. We start to see adults that really struggle with, well, if I can't control, if, if this is so out of control, I must control it. Right. And so in that instance that you gave in the airplane, you wanted control, but you couldn't get it. It wasn't accessible. So you drank. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Well, it makes it. It does make sense that um, I was still under not control. I forgot that I was not in control. I pass out. I, no, no, pass out. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, you soothed it. You soothed yeah, the anxiety. The I anxiety. forgot about that, and then my body, for some reason, said, oh, this is good. Yeah. I forgot about that, so then gave me more. Even I was on the ground, and I could just keep drinking. And going, <laughs> you know, so. Exactly. And going back to normal, mm-hmm. even though normal isn't healthy, as a society, we have a very messed up view or relationship with anxiety in general. Mm-hmm. We forget that the amygdala, the part of our brain that's there just to freak us out and keep us safe, um, sometimes it's over in anxiety situations, sometimes it's overactive, right? And it applies itself or inserts itself at times where it's not needed. Yeah, overactive will be the same as overstimulated because you can be, let's say that you go to a haunted house, mm-hmm. you know, Halloween. Mm-hmm. Is that the same thing? A bit more reactive. You, you have fear. I remember we just did yeah. something for the kids. Yeah. And we put a bracelets to determine the age uh-huh. and how scary level will be during that thing, you know. Uh, uh-huh. And it worked out because, you know, you have this level. So the people working on the scare house will just turn it down. Uh-huh. And then if you didn't see a bracelet or whatever, just go all for it, right? Oh. My question is can you have that thing just by just being awake and be constantly nervous or you need to have, oh, I see an airplane or I see a, a dog, I think it's going to come up by me. So I feel like, is, is, is there a difference there that you are just anxious per se or there is a stimuli outside that triggers? So it's both, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, like we were talking before we started recording, I really like The Anatomy of Anxiety by Ellen Vora. Yes. Um, and she talks about how there's true anxiety and maybe false anxiety. And what's interesting about this is there's anxiety that can be physiological. So if I wake up in the morning and I drink four cups of coffee, my heart's gonna race Mm -hmm. and my brain is gonna register that as anxiety. Mm -hmm. That's normal, right? My solution to that would probably to not drink 800 milligrams of caffeine (laughs) in the morning. Um, That is anxiety we we can, Manage, work through, mm-hmm. manage through lifestyle changes. Um, we also have, you know, anxiety that is situational. Like you said, um, every time you got on a plane, you felt out of control. And so you would sweat, white knuckle, you got physiological and mental health, mm-hmm. you know, symptomology that would come about. You would, you know, quell that with alcohol at the time. So that's another type. 
well, in that case, we would really need to work on this feeling of out of, you know, what is it like to feel out of control? Right? What is it like to feel out of control? And what instances in life outside of this getting on a plane feel out of control? And how do we learn how to build distress tolerance? So nervous system work. How do we learn how to set up our life in alignment with our values so that we're doing things that are important to us because then we have a buy-in. In your case, you were working. That was your income. So getting on a plane was important and there was a motivator for you. But how can we work through that feeling of what do we do when we're out of control besides drink? Right. That's where the real work comes in in terms of recovery from anxiety. Also, we have a culture. I have so many people come into our, my office and say, well, I want zero anxiety. <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't sound safe to me. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what I was. Yeah. That but- doesn't sound safe. So we, if I'm driving my car and a semi is coming out of nowhere or a car is driving on the wrong side of the road or someone is being unsafe, I want my amygdala to kick in and say, hey, put the, pa- put the brakes on. Pause. If I'm getting too close to the edge of a tall building, I want my amygdala to kick on and say, hey, you know, back up. That's not safe. Right. What we don't want is habitual anxiety, right? Oftentimes anxiety becomes very habitual. So your mind and body are like computer systems and you got on that plane, you felt out of control, you got anxiety and you drank. We just created a system and a pattern of behavior. Mm-hmm. So uh, we created a pattern of behavior. So when we have that pattern of behavior, now all of a sudden our brain goes, okay, I know how to handle this. Right. I'm going to do that in every other situation that occurs where I feel out of control. Right. And can I, when you guys were talking about fear and you're saying, but, but I, a book that I read a long time ago, The Gift of Fear by Gavin mm-hmm. DeBecker, you mm-hmm. know him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, fear is, can be life-saving. So like you're saying, there's, and like you were asking, is there like good fear and yes, like you walk, you're walking and you hear footsteps behind you or you notice someone's lurking outside your apartment building. I mean, mm-hmm. or you get that feeling when you're dating someone in the beginning, there's just something off. Like you need to listen to that. And I think a big important differential here is that what you just described is intuition. Right. Fear that amygdala and overactive, an overactive amygdala prevents us from having intuition. Ah. It prevents us from experience our, experiencing our intuitive nature. Mm. So for you, your, your buy-in for becoming a pilot mm-hmm. was because you still wanted control. So you essentially kind of moved um, into a different way of flying. But also part of your intuition was spot on. Like my feet aren't on the ground. <laughs> I'm in the air. Yeah. Someone else is flying the plane. And there is some level of, you know, response to that that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. huh, I'm putting my life in someone else's hands. Right. And yeah. we can rationalize that, but that usually doesn't work very well. Usually we have to have a felt sense of safety mm-hmm. in order to be able to cope and move. So things. this anxiety that we have, or we have, I don't know. So when this substance is presented to us or becomes available, anyone, you know, alcohol in this case, then there is basically no stop for that. If we are, pro- what makes the difference between, let's say that you and I have the same fear of flying. Mm-hmm. What, why I, specifically, not, you know, why I had this 
problem with alcohol and you don't have it. It's just that I get the the black ball or whatever on the lottery of... of, The short straw? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the thing. We all have coping mechanisms. We can't get through life without them. I think what you described, you know, with your growing up is that alcohol was very accepted. It was very present. And so we tend to... Our brains tend to go to the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. It goes to the first thing that's available. And so for you and your culture, like you said, alcohol was there. I liked it. So you had a buy-in from day one. You liked the taste. Um, Lizzie, you liked the feeling of it. So you had a buy-in, a felt sense that was like, this is awesome. Yeah. Right? I'm not me anymore. Um, And so how we come about our particular coping mechanisms, there is some literature um, that suggests different types of trauma leads to different types of coping mechanisms, um, especially in the eating disorder literature, for example. We also know that a lot of different feeling experiences, so shame and doubt, um, are heavily related to, and guilt, are heavily related to substance abuse and alcohol use. So I think there's a, that, that's a multifaceted question of, you know, what type of what type of trauma did we experience growing up? And, and when I say trauma, what I really mean by that is any experience where we don't have the, the coping mechanisms to, to, to work through this particular experience. So I have a lot of people that come into me and say, well, I don't need trauma therapy. I don't have any trauma. <laughs> I said, has there ever been a time in life where you felt like you were just so out of control because you didn't know how to handle a situation? Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, yeah all the time mm-hmm. right because I have a lot of people who um, come in and they're like well you know I've been using for 10 years but I, I had a perfect childhood oh really tell me more so my definition when I say when I say trauma what I'm really saying is our nervous system did not have the tools to work through in a regulated way an experience mm-hmm. so with that when we have you know trauma when we have um, you know, dysregulated systems or, you know, nervous system dysregulation. How do we determine who's going to go for the alcohol, who's going to go for the drugs? Part of that, I do believe, is accessibility. Another part of that, what we know in the literature for, in, in, the, in the literature for alcohol use disorder, is that the age of use. So the earlier we start to drink or the earlier we experience those taste, you know, the five senses Mm -hmm. with alcohol, the more likely we are to use it later on. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the simplified answer is it really just depends on what's accessible, what you're motivated by, what's normal in your culture, um, in your home life, in your systems, and what's working for you. So you gave an example of, well, I wanted to become a pilot and then I couldn't drink. (laughs) Well, you're not going to go necessarily, alcohol is probably not going to be your first coping mechanism. Uh, Like it's not going to be your first go-to because you would lose your biggest motivator, Mm -hmm. which is income and love, your love to fly, your love, you know, your fear or your love to fly. So I think it depends on what motivates us as well, what the value system is within the systems we're in. If I grew up in a home where alcohol is at every meal, it's accessible. If I like it, I have an extra motivator for it. Right, right. See, I never saw my parents abusing it. Actually, it was 
very limited, but it was always there, mm-hmm. always there, mm-hmm. always in any any time. Yeah. Not in the morning, but you know, in the afternoons or uh, on holidays or the weekend, it was there. It was expected. You know, I was. I mean, but yeah, it's, it's yeah how available it was. Is perhaps that is uh, that, well, no, it's obvious that is 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 the what get us into using it. Uh, you know, start abusing it, and um, and it, and alcohol, alcohol too. You know, gives us instant relief in a way. Mm-hmm. It works fast. It's the same reason why a lot of people prefer benzodiazepines mm-hmm. versus breath work. Right. Um, not to say they have the same, you know, effect on the body. However, we know there's substantial research that, you know, particular types of breath work and lifestyle changes and getting adequate sleep and it, all these things can really reduce anxiety. But it's so much easier just to take a benzo. Right. It's quick. Mm-hmm. It's so fast. However, when we're looking at healing from, you know, substance use or abuse, we want sustainable change. And so it's very difficult for our brains to realize like, hey, why would I put in all this effort to use a different coping mechanism when alcohol is so easy? It's so fast. It's it works. Right. And that thing works is good. 80 percent relapse. I mean, yeah. Or more. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think... So I think that plays into it as well. Only two out of ten people stay sober. Yeah. Yeah. Our our brains like the path of least resistance, and they like what works. So you were talking about... uh, I don't know if I brought the word stigma or shame, or I don't even they're the same, but... Obviously, once we determine that we have a problem, either ourselves or... Someone else. Somebody else, you know, what will be... The, or what you think will be the best case scenario? How, how a, a person that has a, a substance addiction problem asks for help, professional help? But any, any, you know, my question is: Is there anything that we can say, hey, people, you know, it's okay to ask for help, or if you don't do this, this is the? I, I don't know. You, yeah. you cannot scare people, but probably see the good things of of it, right? Of course. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that you would protect the thing that helps you feel the most regulated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, it didn't come to you like, hey, I'm going to go to therapy. The side effect of therapy is change, right? Mm-hmm. And we all know that deep down, which is why we tend to avoid it for so long. So part of you subconsciously or consciously wanted to protect the thing that got you through the day. That makes total sense. And that is very normal when people present to psychotherapy. We have to also remember that humans do not change until they have to, whether that's intrinsic motivation by our body is failing us because our organs are failing or, um, external motivation like, Hey, you can't fly because you're drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can't work here anymore because we can't understand you and you're not showing up or whatever the intrinsic, internal or extrinsic, extrinsic, external system oriented pressure is. Um, we're going to, we, we, te- we humans tend to present in therapy with the most pressing issue. We see a breaking point. We see a bubble that's about to burst. We're about to lose our job. We're about to lose our kid. We're about to, you know, we've had so many DUIs. We're never going to be able to drive again or whatever the case is. uh, We're really sick. A lot of people present to our clinic because my PhD is in integrative medicine. So I see a lot of people who have chronic health conditions. 
And so people are like, I'm ready to change. I'm ready to do the lifestyle component. I'm ready to do the work, the trauma work. I'm ready to, you know, look at my life as a whole and see what is in alignment with my values and what isn't. And it just makes a lot of sense that you would protect your biggest coping mechanism. I think the, the healing message that I want to send is that our bodies are designed to heal. They really are. And we're not meant to suffer alone. We're mammals. We're meant to be in community. And if, if someone listening today is suffering so much and they don't even know where to start, I just want to, to relay the message clearly that you don't have to know where to start to come to therapy. You can show up and your therapist is there to help you unpack it and figure out where the biggest pressure points are in your life and what your values are, who you are as a person, you know, how you want to create a life that is worth living for you, that's sustainable. Um, because most of the time, if, we're, if we are using, if we are using coping mechanisms that are no longer serving us, we're not really living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're going to burn out because physically, emotionally, mentally, I mean, the whole thing, we're going to burn out because it's not sustainable. And from what, you know, I've heard even from your own pot, listening to your podcast is that all of your energy tends to go into keeping your addiction alive. Oh, when you're an alcoholic? Right. Oh, absolutely. It, I mean, that's, that would become a basic need. That would be the same as food or shelter. But not only that, as intense as, as like an, it's very hard to explain, but I know that like in extreme situations of hunger or thirst, people will turn on their family members. They'll do anything to meet a need. It is that primal, Mm -hmm. the need for alcohol. And if it's not available, it is literally a panic. Yeah, you're left in a, the most it vulnerable is, state. It is a prison. It is the worst possible prison that you could be in. It's 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 a sense of deep, deep, deep vulnerability. It is very bad. Very bad indeed. But what's not bad is this discussion that we're having with Dr. Elizabeth Miller. I hope that you guys are getting as much hope and inspiration that the body can heal itself and there's so much benefit from therapy, the right kind of therapy, talking with others, and we cannot wait to listen to you guys next week. 